comfortable. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. I wanted to thank uh, Rabbi Cooper and uh, Jake and Esther uh, for doing this with us today. Um, and I invite everybody to join our alumni website that where you can find out about more opportunities like today. Um, it's called flatbushalumni.org. Um, and uh, you can find more things like events, Zooms, uh, reunion information, anything like that. So I hope uh, you all sign up. Um, and I want to introduce Sarah Rubenfeld, uh, Yeshiva Flatbush Alumni Engagement Coordinator, um, who is going to be introducing our speakers. And we're going to hear about their background a little bit. So I'm sure everybody knows, but just for the record. Um, and enjoy the conversation after. Thank you Hi. so much. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. I'm so excited to be here and for us to be hosting these two very esteemed speakers uh, who are also alumni, which is always such a testament to the yeshiva itself and where our alumni go when they leave us. It's always amazing to see. I'm going to start with Rabbi Cooper. He is the Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, a leading Jewish human rights organization with over 400,000 members. Uh, Rabbi Cooper has been a longtime activist in the Jewish community and for human rights causes around the world. In 1977, he made the cross-country trip to Los Angeles to help Rabbi Marvin Heyer found at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. So he has been there since the beginning, uh, which is very exciting. Oh, uh, he regularly meets with world leaders to defend the rights of the Jewish people, combat terrorism, and promote multi-faith relations worldwide. Rabbi Cooper is an acknowledged expert on online hate and terrorism, and also founded the Global Forum on Antisemitism. He's worked extensively with Arab leaders in the Gulf states and was there on site to witness the UAE, Bahrain, and Israel Abraham Accords ceremony at the White House. A very exciting day for all of us, certainly. In 2020, he co-authored the book, The Next Jihad, with the Reverend Johnny Moore, based on interviews with scores of Christian survivors from deadly Islamist terrorist attacks in Nigeria. So a very wide-ranging oh, uh, resume, certainly. Rabbi Cooper is a graduate of the Yeshiva of Flatbush Elementary and High Schools, class of 1968. He's a recipient of Yeshiva University's Bernard Revel Community Leadership Memorial Award, and a recipient of an honorary doctorate from the Yeshiva University. He's also the Orthodox Union, he's also a recipient of the Orthodox Union's National Leadership Award. And his op-eds have, have appeared in major US and Israeli outlets in Asia and in the Arab News and Al Arabiya. Newsweek and the Daily Beast lists Rabbi Cooper as number eight among the 50 most influential rabbis in the US. Rabbi Cooper, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you, and, and th I know my mom, who's still in the same apartment on Avenue J and Coney Avenue, a brief 65 years later, she would have loved to hear the introduction. I know that because she wrote it. <laughs> That's quite a testament to your mom. It sure is, and just, just ask her, so Baruch Hashem, thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, Jake, now we're going to talk about the uh, you know, incredible Jake Novak. Um, Jake is a media professional with more than 26 years of experience as a TV news producer and editorial columnist. Um, during the pandemic, he shifted and he now works for the Israel Consul General's Office here in New York as the director of media. Jake's mastery of written and visual communication techniques 
coupled with his extensive knowledge of world events and history, make him a formidable advocate for the state of Israel's mission to make new friendships, enhance alliances, and spread positive truths over harmful misinformation. Certainly something we've all been hearing a lot about. Previously, Jake created successful shows for two national news networks and worked to revive the ratings of flagging shows as well. Jake has an eye for stories that create debate on air and online. His straightforward and concise approach, perfect for TV, radio, and online publications. And he uses all of that to create his own content, becoming the number one most read columnist on CNBC.com. Jake worked for CNBC, Fox, CNN, and New York One as a successful producer and content creator. Uh, Jake, I think you created in the papers for New York One, correct? You're on mute. Uh, I, I expanded it. It used to be a minute and a half, and we we, we stretched it to the epic that it became. So, yes. <laughs> a very successful segment, for sure. Uh, beyond his abilities to connect with TV and web audiences, Jake is a proven expert in history, politics, economics, the Middle East, religion, collegiate sports, and American culture. Jake graduated from Yeshiva of Flatbush High School in 1988. He received his BA in international politics from Columbia University and has a master's in journalism from Northwestern. We're so honored to have you here with us today, Jake. Thank you. Thank you. And since Rabbi Cooper mentioned his mom, I want to mention mine today. It's her birthday. So happy birthday, mom, and um, to all the great moms out there. (laughs) Happy birthday. Happy birthday. And last but not least, thank you so much to Esther Hittery, who is going to be our moderator today. Esther is also a graduate, class of 1994. And she currently serves as the Yeshiva of Flappish Joel Braverman High School Associate Principal and Director of Teaching and Learning. Um, Esther has been with us here on the faculty for a number of years. And I know that uh, for some of our, you know, for many of our younger alumni, she has been, uh, she has certainly been a part of their Cornerstone High School experience. Ms. Ms. Hittery received a degree in English and American Literature, a master's degree, I should say, from New York University, as well as a master's degree in English Education from Columbia University Teachers College. After graduate school, She returned to the yeshiva as a teacher and a mentor. Alongside her work as an administrator, she chairs our Tanakh department, and she lectures widely on topics related to literature, Torah, education, and Jewish philosophy. Esther, thank you so much for being our moderator today. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. How exciting. Um, In the the future, I will read my bio first, because it'll sound good before... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these amazing guest speakers that we have. Um, so honored to have both of you here and to participate in the conversation. So I think the way we'll generally stru- uh, structure this is we'll hear from Rabbi Cooper, then we'll hear from Mr. Novak, from Jake, and then we'll open it up to some Q&A. So very excited to dig in. Rabbi Cooper, I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, well, thank you. And this is uh, just a, an amazing uh, embracing uh, event to be at virtually. I've been telling people around the world the one great thing about Zoom uh, is they finally figured out a way how to be able to mute clergy. So uh, unfortunately, it's not going to work this time around, but you may want to keep that in, in mind for the future. Also, I actually thought that our other distinguished speaker would go first, not only because of his good looks, but because uh, he fulfills the uh, the decision made in the Gemara, Gadol HaMetsuveva Oseh, meaning we, I remember the debate, I think it was sophomores in high school, 
having this huge debate about what do you mean? If you're a volunteer and you choose to help, that's much better than you have to go out every day and do something. Uh, and uh, sure enough, the our, our sages were smart enough to tell us, no, no. First and foremost, are the people who have to go out every day and defend sometimes things that are almost impossible to defend. So uh, thank you for calling on quote, you know, the rabbi first. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge that of the two of us, uh, despite the fact in many ways we're in the same arena, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's an honor uh, to be with someone who's, who has officially thrown his lot in, uh, you know, with Kla Yisrael through, through the state of Israel. Uh, I'll uh, want to make basically uh, three initial points. You may be surprised by them. First, t- uh, today's May 23rd. May 23rd. 1960 was the date that Israeli agents nabbed Eichmann in Argentina uh, and uh, the amazing flight of El Al to get him out of the country a day early on a day when the plane was not supposed to even be scheduled to, to leave. And the trial that took place, huge international storm. Israel paid a huge price for it. However, uh, it showed Israel, the fledgling young state, as strong, courageous, and fearless. And despite all of the international protests, the fact remains that uh, until this day, uh, when you talk to people around the world, especially if you carry the name of Simon Wiesenthal, who had a role all in keeping the Eichmann case uh, alive until such time as the Israelis, thank God, were able to get him and bring him to trial, um, that um, that's what they admire most about Israel. And I'm not talking about just friends. I'm talking about enemies that may not say it publicly, but they respect when Israel acts from strength, acts decisively, and acts with courage. Uh, it's something that they're not going to necessarily tout on their social media links, but it is a part of the um, equation. And so just pause for a moment to thank the amazing chain of individuals, starting with survivors uh, and right through to the young Israelis uh, who, who nabbed him. And then, of course, Gideon Hausner's team that prosecuted him in Yerushalayim. Uh, just to say thank you uh, for um, showing the world, in a sense, what the Jewish people were capable of when they had the chance to stand on their own two feet in their own land. <clears throat> Secondly, I want to dedicate my, uh, my words here, the ones that at least have meaning, to Shmuel Yitzchak ben Yosef Michel, my father, otherwise known as Mark Cooper, uh, who taught for decades in Dovrevel and the last 10 years of his life at Yeshiva Slapush, and especially the Chesed, that the Flappish family showed him during the last years in his struggles with, uh, with cancer. His, uh, uh, he will be uh, remembered on his yard site uh, next Thursday, his 37th year. But like everything else about Flappish, I mean, you could walk out the door, but the legacy just follows you everywhere. Everywhere I go in the world, as far away as Hong Kong, uh, I have Flappish graduates coming up and saying, you're Mark Cooper's son. So that's really uh, absolutely uh, amazing. 
Uh, I thought since my involvement with the Arab and Muslim world goes back now probably about 30 years, I wanted to share with you uh, a story that was so instructive to me and remains, I think, a very important uh, touch, if you will, touchstone. So here's the point. If you go to London and you want to have a secret meeting, the way it's done is you meet at the London Hilton. Uh, so that no one will know that you're having a meeting. So, of course, that's where all the people hang out, waiting for people who think they're having secret meetings. And I was asked to come to London Hilton to meet with the number one imam of Sudan. This goes back a good 20 years ago. And he had reason to want to have the meeting in, in private. Wouldn't have been good for his health. So I asked myself, what do you do? What do you bring to a a Muslim religious leader, what gifts do you bring? How do you introduce yourself? So I decided to bring three things to the meeting. Number one, I brought him a chamsa, which had the Birkat Kohanim engraved on it. Uh, Number two, I brought my talit and tefillin from my room to his. And number three, I gave him a little Dvar Torah. So number one was just a natural to uh, Hamsa, of course, is uh, in the Middle East and now around the world, a universal symbol. Uh, It's a cultural and for some a religious symbol. And it gave us a chance to talk about the concept of uh, bracha, of a blessing, or baraka, if you were talking in a different language. He found it to be quite interesting. Um, Next, I showed him my talit. And I unraveled my feeling. And I said, when I came in from Los Angeles this morning, this is what I put on when I said my prayers. And this man who, by the way, had three grown children who were physicians in London, brilliant gentlemen, said, Jews pray? He was completely astounded that uh, the Jewish people had a concept also called prayer. That itself was a, uh, a major wake-up call. And the third point uh, that I gave him was verbal. And I decided to share with him, uh, paraphrase Rambam's comments about who's worthy to go to the world to come, to go to heaven. And Rambam, as you know, if you remember before we learned about Asertime uh, Tshuva, that um, he tries to teach us the Shvil HaZahav, that middle way, and that he says that everybody should basically try to look at their uh, themselves as being on the 50-yard line. 50% good deeds, 50% not good deeds, and the next thing that you're going to do is going to tilt it for you, for your family, for your country, and indeed for the world. And someone who has more Shriyot then the other way is going to the right place. And someone, God forbid, who doesn't is going somewhere else. And he warns us, don't try to do the mathematics. <laughs> you will not figure out God's paradigms of how he weights the points of any of your, your deeds. Why did I tell him this story? He was quite shocked by it. And it's something I had already heard from a number of Muslims, not on their first discussion with me, but on their second. Many young Muslims are taught 
that Jews are racists. Why? I was always asked, Rabbi, do you believe in the Torah? Yes. Do you believe the Torah is true? Yes. Do you believe that God gave the Torah? Yes. So we've met now twice. Why haven't you tried to convert me? That must mean that Jews have an exclusive club and you're a bunch of racists, including you, dear rabbi. Nice guy, but... And so in this particular case, I tried to, to co-opt. Um, I used the, that meeting as a kind of uh, guide in, in my future contacts. And, and I don't want to... There's a lot more to say, but I just want to make sort of one central point. My closest friend in Israel is a fairly well-known gentleman by the name of Ehud Ya'ari. Um, he, he's the part I've never called until now that I know Jake. A single Israeli official will find out what's going on there. Not that I don't trust them, but, you know, we can all spin a dreidel. If I wanted to know straight, do agree, Ehud's always the guy to call. And we met over the decades with so many Palestinian leaders in so many basements of so many hotels. But at one point, Ehud sort of, when I kept asking these questions, he said, well, why don't you just go meet these people? I'm not going to bite. If you have the curiosity, it's time for you to go and meet. And I've had the opportunity uh, to meet with the famous and not so famous people from Indonesia, uh, uh, across uh, the Maghreb, uh, and, and it's been uh, a really interesting um, experience. I think the most important thing that I learned since my main day job is about combating anti-Semitism, is that for most of the billions of people out there, especially in uh, South Asia, uh, Africa, they don't actually wake up in the morning with Jew on the brain. Most people never meet a Jew. They, and if they hear something, well, the, what? They're going to hear it from um, Al Jazeera, from BBC, from CNN International. They probably won't hear too many you know, good things. But I found that the main motivator that people that I met with was not anti-Semitism. It was curiosity. Like, could you explain to me why a Jew in Teaneck cares about a Jew in Toronto who cares about a Jew in Tokyo, who cares about all Jews in Tel Aviv? Like, are you an American? Are you an Israeli? Is this a religion? Is it a nationality? Uh, they want to understand what makes you tick as a Jew. There's a profound, deep curiosity. Now, once upon a time, that would be a luxury. If people like Jake and I have international connections, isn't that nice you're having meetings? But I would argue that since the advent of social media, that a discussion like today should spur each of us to figure out, well, wait a second, what can I do here? Because there's a vacuum out there about Jews, Judaism, Jewish values, and the Jewish state. We now have the opportunities through social media and other ways to begin to fill that vacuum. If we don't, we, well, we already know from the squad and their chevre all over the world, they're working 24-7 to fill a completely different narrative about Jews and about Israel. So this is a, an amazing time. I would just say that anything we, we've been involved, especially 
with um, with um, uh, the kingdom of Bahrain. How he got there was not through a business model. It was through an imam in Paris that I knew whose family moved to Bahrain. And that eventually led to a meeting with the king of Bahrain. Uh, it led to my hosting 24 faith leaders in Yerushalayim two years before the Accords. And there is a lot to be said for people-to-people contacts and links. Having said all of that, let me reiterate one point that I learned in Yeshiva of Flatbush and from my own parents from a young age. The only reason Jews can stand up today, openly, in public, with self-pride and dignity, is because there is a Jewish state. Don't kid yourself. If there wasn't a state of Israel, none of the kings in the in the uh, Gulf uh, would give a, a darn unless there's a Jewish uh, physician who can help them to get better or a businessman who can help them make billions more. The opportunities that are now there for us, our children and grandchildren, are there because there is a strong state of Israel. The question going forward is, what do we mean by strong? And how do we increase the DNA of peace? Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Cooper. That was very uh, inspiring and insightful. But on that note of building these lines of communication and trying to get our, you know, to to build those bridges, we'll turn to Jake Novak, who's been in the media and is working on this firsthand. Jake, um, looking forward to hearing your your thoughts. Thank you very much, Esther. And um... Thank you, Rabbi Cooper, for, you know, so many of your kind words as well. That was that was really nice of you. And it is also my honor to be appearing here with you for, for many reasons. Um, you know, the, the answer to your question about moving forward and what we can do is so incredibly connected to my Flatbush experience that there's no way to, to separate them. I started as a student at Yeshiva Flatbush on September 4th, 1984. That was freshman orientation in the high school. And I would be lying if I didn't say that the thing that was the hardest for me to really get used to was here I was in a school with all Jewish students and I had spent quite a bit of my life in places where I was a, a distinct minority as a Jew growing up in some other parts outside of New York. And yet it was still very, very diverse to the point that I didn't understand a lot of the cultural differences between me and my fellow students. The Syrian students, the other Sephardic students were different in some of their cultural, um, their traditions. And it was very, very interesting. I mean, it, it, it was just one of these things like, wow, what a, what a tremendous wake up call it was. And of course, I realized very soon after that, that that was one of the things that really made Flatbush very, very strong, especially at that time. We, each one of the kids who was there, had another choice where they would culturally be probably more comfortable amongst all of their own types of Jews. And the reason why we were there invariably with very few exceptions was every one of our parents said, no, this is a better school for you to go to. You're going to go here and you'll just learn how to coexist. And that's what made it into such a magical place for so many years and continues now. Now, my interest in this topic had a lot to do with my work, had a lot to do with Middle East history, all those things that, of course, Flatbush played a role. But honestly, it, it really had a lot to do with that, with that experience that began on that day in September of 1984. Because, you know, and I, I sense this from Rabbi Cooper, too, and it's so important 
there is a lot to be pessimistic about. And not only as a Jew, but as someone who worked in the television news business for 26 years, and I promise you all the biases that you've heard about TV news, they're all true. But the number one bias isn't politics, believe it or not. The number one bias isn't even geography. And they are very, very strong biases. The New York, Washington bias, the political bias that, we're all, that we all know about news, it's all true. But the number one bias since the time of the caveman drawing is negativity. The news business favors negative stories, stories that frighten you. Now, you know this even from your weather report. Why is it that the one-inch snowstorm is peddled by the news media as snowmageddon and your parents are going to die every time that happens? Because that's, our, that's the bias in that business. Now, I fought against that for a long time. And one of the ways I fought against that is I switched to financial news where if, it's still a bias in favor of negativity. But if you go overboard on your negativity, you could get, you know, you could go to jail. You're not allowed to say this company is worthless, sell all your stock now and then put it under, under you know, put the money under your mattress. So I was attracted to financial news for many reasons, but that was one big reason. Now, when we talk about the Abraham Accords and we talk about what's going on, I think it's a great example of what I consider to be educated optimism. Um, you know, as a student of history, it's hard not to run into the Jewish story every, every once in a while, whenever you're learning history, from a, even from a secular point of view. And for the, the fact is, with obviously some, many, some exceptions here and there, it was better to be a Jew living in Arab lands than Christian lands until the time of Napoleon. Napoleon comes in, and by the way, he's a very underrated hero for, for Jewish history, despite the fact that he was a very difficult and complicated and probably not a righteous person. But from Jewish history, it's important that we kind of learn his role. But until Napoleon comes around, it's kind of better to be a Jew in an Arab land. And then, of course, there's other things that happen in Europe as well, the more modernization and other things like that. And it's also important to remember that the relationship between Jews and Arabs was very much based on economic partnerships. It makes me laugh every time I hear someone say to me like, well, why is the Abraham Accord such a big deal? It's not like the UAE or Bahrain ever invaded Israel or they shot each other. It's just an economic agreement to which I'm just like, boy, how much more historically ignorant can you prove to me that you are in three seconds? Uh, economic relationships, cultural relationships, that's how you get not only peace in the world, but progress. Um, somebody, t you know, ask these people maybe to learn about the Dutch East India Company. The Dutch East India Company was never a, uh, you know, never had a fleet of warships or, or millions of troops. It was a business operation that that spread, uh, you know, quite a, wood, quite a bit of good around the world. So, I mean, my point is, this is not something that's new to us. Now, again, education, educated optimism. I'm, am I saying that Jews who still live pretty much as second-class citizens, even under the best of times in a lot of Arab lands over the centuries, had it great? No. But they had an important role to play in these, in these countries. And in some countries like Egypt, before the beginning of the 20th century, they were starting to reach a pinnacle of influence and prosperity because of the respect in the economic realm that the Muslim le leaders in Egypt had for them. And of course, sadly, it was Egypt where that tide st started to turn because Egypt is the, is the birthplace of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was a small, radical group started around the turn of the century that not surprisingly caught the eye of the Nazis. The Nazis saw this group and they're like, we can work with these people. Here is a, a, a group that looks at the Jews the way we want to look at them, that isn't interested in any kind of partnerships with them. And as the Nazi regime grew in power, 
they were able to even go to Egypt and say, get the Jews out of your government, get the Jews out of your leadership positions or we're not buying your cotton anymore. And again, to be educatedly optimistic, my point is we were going in a good direction as Jews living in Egypt, living in Syria, living in some of the other Arab lands with a lot of notable exceptions. And again, educated, realistic optimism. And it's important to note that while Arab anti-Semitism and Arab relationships weren't, you know, those kinds of things weren't created in Europe. They were very much harvested there. And the catalyst was Nazism. They, this is all documented and stuff we learned in Yeshiva Flatbush in the Zionism class that many of the, you know, alumni took. But the understanding that there was a relationship between Hitler and, and the Mufti uh, that went beyond the, the famous handshake picture. They had deals. The Mufti had a radio show that was broadcast in a city 20 miles outside Berlin every day for years during the war. And by the way, the most avid listener of that show was the person who grew up to be Ayatollah Khomeini. So it wasn't just Arabs who were listening. It was other Muslims. So when I look at the Abraham Accords and people say this is historic, of course it's historic. But it's also a reset. I feel like we can start over from where we were before the Nazi influence from a much better place than we were in probably 1920 anyway. But certainly let's have a reset. Let's go back to where we were. Let's go back to that point where hundreds of thousands of Arab Muslims came from the Ottoman Empire to to work in Israel because the Jews were hiring. Let's go back to a place where we were, where King Farouk, who was incredibly corrupt individual, but wasn't dumb, knew that if you want to to get the French and the British influence out of Egypt, he needed to partner with the Jews and was in favor of a Jewish state in that, in, in that way. Because he figured, hey, this, this is going to be a great group of people to bring, get rid of those colonialists who were ruining what Egypt could be. So we're in, it's, it is historic and it should be celebrated, but I'm kind of like answering this question like I'm talking to the wise son at the Seder. It can't just be, hey, it's a good thing that Abraham Accords, yay. It's no, we need you now to start reconnecting with this traditional, with, with, with these traditional relationships that we've had, that maybe your great grandparents had, that maybe your great great grandparents had, and that is why the younger alumni yeshiva Flabish are so crucial to this Abraham Accords process. The the the, the Flabish alumni who come from Egyptian and Syrian descent, we need you. We need you to go to Dubai, especially if you're you know, if you're already in the business realm. Go and find out. And then what Rabbi Cooper talked about is so important. This is a cultural reawakening. You know. I don't think that the secularist movement within the Arab world and the Jewish world did us a lot of favors when it came to just this relationship between the two of us, because there are so many similarities in the day-to-day observances of religious Muslims and religious Jews that when secularism came into play, they, you got a guy who, who, like Rabbi Cooper said, didn't even know that Jews prayed. You know, you go to Dubai now and the rush is to open kosher restaurants. They're seeing acculturated suit-wearing suit and tie wearing Jews who are still stopping to eat and only eat kosher food or still stopping to daven three times a day. This is very important. This is what really will create the respect between the two of us, but also they have to have the opportunities. And I think that as great as it is when Ashkenazim people who look like me go to Dubai and make these connections, as great as that is, I really want to see the, the Mizrahi Jews who are represented greatly by the more recent alumni of Yeshiva Labish. I want them to go and show them we are people together, but this, we, we are children of this region together. We were once much closer. Let's start this up again, because if the state of Israel and Bahrain and UAE are, are up for it, why can't we be? And that's where we have to be right now. Thank you so much, Jake, for that. I think um, speaking as a Mizrahi, just for to 
we've always said we share the same music, we share a lot of the same language, a lot of the same food. It is a good beginning. What I'm hearing from both of you is this um, passionate appeal to the idea that let's let's search for that common ground and build upon it. Um, you spoke about a negativity bias that sometimes we, we might want to think things are more desperate than they are. I guess I'll turn to both of you, Rabbi Kuru, we can start with you, this idea of do you believe that the Abraham Accords were built from a place of, of deep optimism, which opened up this conversation? Um, do you see that growing or shrinking right now and in the coming years? Right. Well, I mean, if I knew the answer to that question, Jake and I could retire and right. start our, our own the blog and charge a lot of money for it. Um, you know, um, I think we have to have our eyes uh, wide open and our hands lifted to the Shemayim, as Jews always are. We have to be realistic. And I think we're taught to be optimistic. First, let's be honest. And I know this is a famous uh, Syrian Jewish uh, uh, term. The Shat Chanes Gelt for the Abraham Accords, okay, go to two people. And if they called me as a witness, I'd have to go to the court. You ready? The Ayatollah Khomeini and President Obama. The more the U.S. and the Iranians play footsie, the more the folks in the Gulf and the Jewish state, for darn good reason, rush to embrace themselves even deeper. So let's be realistic. When Rabbi Heyer and I had that amazing still mind-boggling meeting that was broadcast throughout the region in Bahrain with the king. It's not like the king didn't meet with Israeli officials or some Jews beforehand. Uh, it, it was the timing. It was the, the format, the setting. Um, and so let, let's be realistic. The Abraham Accords launch was first, what was, shall we say, supercharged as a result of existential fears. Didn't hurt. We also know, those of us here who wish we still had more hair or, you know, uh, that it's as the world turns. Everything goes in a cycle. Right now, Tehran's the enemy, existential enemy, and we have all these potential new friends. We can't control the political um, physics, if you will, what we can do, what you've already heard now from Jake, is we can influence uh, the, the real path to peace, which is based on economics and it's based on, uh, on culture. So uh, I just want to point to two things also that, uh, if you will, in many ways go back to sort of instinctive flappish uh, uh, training. So... Uh, my boss, Rabbi Heyer, Rabbi Marvin Heyer, is an amazing, visionary, unbelievable leader. And uh, so we, we come into the, I had been already in Bahrain for a few days. He flew in on a Sunday. Uh, we first have a meeting with some faith leaders, and then we're ushered to the palace. We come into the room, besides the fact there are cameras, theirs, and the entire brain trust of Bahrain both sons, the Shura Council, the foreign minister, you name it, they're all there. And of course, there are protocols. 
well, if we ever write a book, I have a chapter, I violated more protocols in Japan than uh, I even knew existed. Rabbi Harris in the Lower East Side, so you can imagine when we see popes and presidents, you know, we have a slightly different approach to things. So the one thing you never do when you approach uh, royalty is you don't stick your hand out. So Rabbi Hire comes into the room, walks right over to King Hamad, sticks his hand out, takes the king's hand, and gives him in Hebrew first the bracha of Malchut, the full bracha, Hashem Elokeinu, and then translated into English. You could see the, the man's eyes lit up. Later on, I have a very close friend whose name I still can't use. Um, I asked him, you know, he said, I asked his majesty, and this is a guy whose grandfather was the aide-de-camp to the Zeta, whose father who just passed was the assistant to the last king. He said, your, your majesty, you've met with Jews before. You've, you've met with rabbis before. What is it with you and Rabbi Hire? You know, you really hit it off. He said, I'll, I'll tell you. He's the first person ever to come into my presence who wasn't coming to ask for something, who came to give me something, a blessing from God. That and the fact that both of them love Frank Sinatra, that cemented their relationship. I think we all love The second point I want to make about, if you will, it's the shlach lach machal pene hamayim, right? You're in a meeting, I'm there with Rabbi Heyer, and I know, I've been told, I'm going to get one question. Uh, and so, of course, you know, rabbis can make one into two, but the, the, main, the main thing that we wanted from His Majesty is we were looking for a statement about religious tolerance from the Arab head of state. Now, we weren't going to get it at this meeting, but a few months later, and I think you, you should be able to Google it, he made a statement that is so mind-boggling, really revolutionary. And there have been other interfaith statements, <coughs> including uh, in Alexandria and others. Sometimes you need a Rashi and Tosvot and a, and a book to look up the meaning of the words. He wrote straight the following. Everybody has the right to pray to God the way they see fit. You even have the right not to pray. So for us, it's Alephbet. For him, it's a revolution. And that statement, more than anything else, you know, I've spoken to many Saudis. I even hosted a few Kuwaitis in Israel. And they all said, you know, we don't know what happened, but until this whole business came along, you know, when you would see Bahrain uh, name in the newspaper, you went to the sports section, you look up the Gulf Soccer League scores, and if they played that night, it said Bahrain zero and Abu Dhabi three. He said, all of a sudden, King Haman is this international figure who's impacting in, in a profound way. It's a tiny little uh, country. But that's exactly the point, meaning he had, this is something they live by in that kingdom. They have a 200-year-old um, uh, a Hindu functional uh, a Hindu temple. They live it. So it's no chidush. It's nothing new for them. 
but helping them to get that message onto the world stage helps us, you know, and uh, uh, later this morning, although he doesn't know it because I have COVID, the Bahraini ambassadors coming to the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, they called like on Thursday, and this is, I think Jake's going to laugh, but this is true because they really do believe in the mysterious power of Jews. So they call, and this please, if anyone's writing this up, bottom line is they call 48 hours before and say, Rose, my good friend there, the ambassadors, he's going to be in LA Monday. Uh, he would like a lunch from 12 to 3. And here are the following seven areas that he would like to have business people and people from the music industry and entertainment and internet. Can you guys set something up, you know, for, for him? Uh, nothing, you know, nothing special with, with, uh, with all of that. So, you know, Todala Elliot Barak Shemo, he has a good sense of humor. I didn't do it because I haven't been well. But yeah, he'll come. He'll, he'll have, <coughs> he's got a very successful meeting. Uh, and the, uh, I guess, the image of the ability of Jews to deliver. That's the other point. Jake and I spoke about this once before. The biggest secret that I learned uh, in all my travels in the Middle East, though I haven't been to Saudi Arabia and I have plenty of contacts there. You know what they need more than anything else? They need jobs. Yes, even in Saudi Arabia, they need jobs for their young people. They look at Egypt. They have all these PhDs. They have a brain drain. There's no hope. People leave. If they're going to survive, no matter how many billions they have in the ground, they need to create uh, opportunities for people to work. That's where Israeli know-how, businessmen, Jewish acumen, uh, and others of trying to jumpstart things and trying to get things done uh, is a profound attraction to them. At the end of the day, a greater existential threat to them than Iran is. And guess what? The Eberstoff, for at least a couple of years now, has given the Jewish people and the Jewish nation the opportunity. And just one last point, something that Jake mentioned I should have said from the very top. Uh, I was lucky because my life was enhanced. I grew up with Syrian Jews in Flatbush, and I went to Bet Torah every Shabbat afternoon. But it's extremely important that uh, Sephardic Jews take uh, a more profound involvement because they've heard stories from their grandparents and great-grandparents of their family's history that has as much impact, or should, on them, then my stories of my great-grandparents when I meet with an official from Russia or Poland or, or Germany. There, there's no replacing that. that. That's not a negative. It's a value added. And also, it helps keep us reality-based. So, I'm, I mean, I'm pulling away. First of all, there are there are a lot of things in the background, obviously being leveraged, the political environment, economic needs, social connections. It's very, um, again, it's very inspiring to hear that the work is getting done, being done. I think a lot of people sitting in their homes watching TV, I don't know if anybody else does this, I talk at the television a lot in like animated tones and I debate people in my mind and I just wanna present myself as a Jew to the world. 
and we feel really frustrated about the narrative. Um, we're hearing the message, Jake, what, what is being, what do you see being done? How could the media do a better job? And maybe even to transition to is what about the lay person watching this all go, go by what, how, you know, where do they, where could they step in? But just to begin with what you're seeing in the media right now. Well, the answer to this question is the same answer to the question what the media could be doing about covering every story. Um, you know, you talk right. about, you talk about our, heritage as Jews, our sub-heritage, whether we're Sephardic or Ashkenazi, you know, from my mother's side, I'm a Lithok. So basically, everyone is an Amaharetz until proven otherwise. Basically, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, the, that's the Lithuanian Jewish outlook on the world. Uh, I think I do it with a smile. I'm an incredibly friendly and warm person. But until I know someone knows what the heck they're talking about, I assume they don't. And that's the biggest problem in the news media. You have a news media which is beyond ignorant, um, nine times out of 10, we see something that makes us angry in the news. I urge you not to assume it's political bias. It's probably ignorance, literal ignorance, not just like, oh, they don't know. They literally don't know. So your question is very pointed because today we had a story in the New York Times that was written, co-written by someone I used to work with at, at CNBC, a, a, a very lovely and nice person and not a dumb person. But and I know this wasn't her fault, but the editors of that, I mean, the story was written. So this was a story about Jared Kushner and Steve Mnuchin and their investments in the Arab world. Yeah, I really feel like, was this written by a five-year-old who doesn't know that since the dawn of time, people have used their political connections to enhance their own business uh, once they leave office and vice versa? I mean, this is done all the time. Is it a lovely thing? No, not necessarily. But I mean, the story is written as if there's this great revelation all of a sudden, it turns out people who are in government try to profit off of it, profit off of it afterwards. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, the answer to your question is the incredible ignorance that's going in here. Now, let's be a little bit more benevolent here. And there's things that you don't have to be so ashamed about not knowing, which is this is something similar to what Rabbi Cooper just said. I want to I want to do a toast photo and I want to drill down a little bit, just a little bit more on it. When the Bahraini and the UAE uh, dignitaries were giving speeches at the signing of the Abraham Accords in September of, 20, of 2020, they both mentioned about how this was an important for the future of their children. And I started to laugh in the newsroom because I knew that almost every American, Jewish or not, was watching that and thinking, oh, this is like the Whitney Houston song. I believe the children of our future. Okay, yes, it was about little kids. It wasn't about little kids. It was literally about their adult children who were in their 30s, 40s, sometimes 50s. That's who they're worried about. Now, imagine you've got this avalanche of petrodollars coming into your economy. Let's talk about the history of that very, very briefly. You know, since the 1970s, there have been times here and there where billions and trillions of dollars have poured into these Arab economies, Saudi Arabia primarily, but also UAE and Bahrain. And what do they do with all that money? You can't just, it's not like, you know, in the movie, I always make, it's not like the movie, The Hobbit, where you're like the dragon and you're sitting and you're like sitting on this mountain of gold. No, nobody does that. Okay. They like to use it. So one of the great follies in the seventies was the petrodollars were poured into South America and a tremendous amount of corruption and things that went wrong with the infrastructure of Brazil and other countries like that are because of that glut of attribute. They just didn't know where to throw their money. Um, then you have another situation like we were talking about, you have these adult children who have billions of dollars and nothing to do. Now, what's going to happen to these kids? They basically see two nightmare situations for their children. And again, by children, I mean adult 40-ish children. They can either go to London or Paris and debauch themselves, and there's a lot of that going on, sorry to say, or maybe they'll become Osama bin Laden. Those aren't two great options right now. What they would like is, for the even if they're not necessarily working fingers to the bone, 
every day in a position. They would like them to be on the board of a company, preferably an active member. And of course, Israel is pumping out these potential companies like water, you know, like, like, like rainwater. And it's really, really important. And so that, you know, that's a very big deal because, you know, tell me if this sounds familiar to those of you sitting here in Flatbush right now. These oil is the family business, right? Operated by a lot of different people. And after a while, the third and fourth and fifth kid comes along and the nephew comes along and there's not enough jobs for you in the family business. Does this sound familiar to anyone listening? I think it does. And it's time to get them into professions. I mean, this is what we've seen in our own community, you know, for Flatbush. We've seen that move away. You can't just always go into the family business. There's not enough room for it anymore. Not the business could be thriving. So this is a huge part of it. So this is my, this is my financial journalist hat looking at it from that point of view. Yes, it has a lot to do with Iran. Yes, it has a lot to do with this cultural connection. And I, and I don't want to forget to say this group's name, even though it's a little bit off the topic. There's a group called Sharaka, S-H-A-R-A-K-A. It's Jews and Muslim Arabs together, mostly Muslim Arabs who are making this cultural connection and making the peace treaties of the Abraham Accords, everything that the peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan haven't been. They are, there's a cultural warmth to them and it's beautiful. It's self, you know, mutual discovery. It's a fantastic group. Follow them on social media and do all that kind of stuff. But in general, though, this is, this is, a, this is just, this is like the force of nature. I mean, if you understand economics as a science and as a force of nature, you understand there's one group of countries that are sitting on so much money and with nothing to do with it. They need jobs. And it's not just jobs like service jobs and cab drivers and building more hotels. They need jobs for their already rich kids to keep them busy so that the devil doesn't find work for their idle hands. Uh, and we see where that went. So this is really important. This is, again, something, again, another connection that I think the community in Flatbush, particularly the Sephardi community, can, can relate to. A, a family business where there's not enough room for all the kids and grandkids? Yeah, we understand that. <laughs> You've seen that many times. And that's what's going on in the Middle East right now. Um, fascinating. I'm looking at our time. We don't have a ton of time left. I, you know, I, it, it, the, the conversation really um, has been very rich. I want to open it up and see if anybody on the chat wants to post in, um, or let me know if you want you want me to ask anything in addition. I guess I'll ask again to each of you. You know what what should we first of all? Here I am, an educator. Uh, certainly, we're talking to our students a lot. Um, what could a young person or anyone really do? to help these efforts along, to support it, um, to move the conversation forward. For, thank you so much for all you do. Is there any, is there any way that an individual could get more involved? To either of you. Uh, I'll, uh, let me make one or two quick comments. Uh, first, I mean, I saw Harvey uh, before, Arthur, a couple of, had a couple of our contemporaries and probably, oh, and uh, uh, a good friend, uh, Mr. Fish and others, uh, anybody here remember when we were freshmen in high school, when we had a visiting student from Vietnam for about a month, right? Um, I remember that. Of course, it says a lot more that I can't remember much about the beautiful Swedish girl who came the following year because I don't know about you. I never saw her anywhere near a classroom. But the Vietnam, the presence of a Vietnamese student whatever it was, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, from a completely alien culture, barely functional in English, and everything that Vietnam was evolving into, that 
personal exposure, even at that age, uh, you know, to, to our school uh, was, was mind boggling. It, it, it was a game changer. Um, I don't think we have to be that exotic anymore, but, and I know it's not so simple. We can't go to, to uh, Syria right now because it's still run by a war criminal. And uh, it's going to be a long time yet uh, before we can do that. But, you know, Flappish is a pretty creative place. How about a limited, well thought through week or two exchange program? Maybe it's with Morocco. Uh, and, you know, if you need help uh, reaching out to, the, uh, to an ambassador, it's not a simple process. I bet if you start checking around in the school, how about a limited exchange program uh, from, from, um, from one of the countries where uh, peace currently reigns, uh, even if it's just for a week? Finding opportunities to connect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And obviously, and to, there are and a to lot, get to know each other on that morning. Get yeah, to know each other, yeah. but it also it means that we're celebrating our, you know, our, if you will, our differences. And that's fine. The fact that we right. all pray, but pray differently, that we have halal and kosher. Well, for, uh, you know, someone from, from your background, you know all of that. But guess what? Most young people don't. So I think throwing a little bit of flappish right. magic into this will will help, um, if you will, spur the kinds of sparks, the types that we want to see. One other quick point. There are, I think, 350,000 Israelis have already visited the UAE. I hate to say this. It was told to me when I was young, it happens to be true, especially in the Arab world. And that is, you can't tell a tourist to be on their best behavior, but every single Jew, until it becomes so normal that nobody even thinks about it, every Jew who goes now to an Arab or Muslim land is seen as an emissary for better or for worse. And I think especially for people who are totally secular, when they're invited for their first business meeting on Shabbat afternoon, it's, there's nothing negative about it. It's normal. But if you say no, chances are you're going to get a real relationship with the person. You may not get the business, but you're going to have a real relationship and interaction with the people in that country. Wow. Jake, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that the the understanding here is that Again, with caution, uh, you know, at Rabbi Cooper talked before, like, uh, is, it, is it a lack of respect that Jews don't try to uh, convert uh, their non-Jewish friends? Obviously, we know that's against our rules. Um, that isn't a rule in the Arab world. Um, and they've got some interesting, if you read Jesse Klein Halevi's book about, um, about his interactions with, with Muslims throughout the region, you know, he talks about how they very often were aggressively and sometimes using a little bit of backhanded stuff to get him to to make the declaration of being a Muslim. So I would say, you know, you got to be careful about that kind of stuff. However, and that's something that I grew up with uh, a little bit growing up in the South as well. Um, so it's not like I'm not used to that kind of thing from coming from evangelical Christians. But at the same time, it's their interest that is is the most important thing. And, you know, it would be great if prior to some kind of an exchange program or even in lieu of one, if it doesn't work out, like Rabbi Cooper was saying, to have the, the teachers at Flatbush, both the secular and the religious teachers, you know, talk to the, you know, work with the, work with some of the students and say, what is it that you would like to say 
what's your elevator pitch as a Jew to a, to a Muslim Arab who isn't necessarily uh, radicalized yet or isn't exactly in love with us either? What's your elevator pitch? What would you say? Would you say um, the things that almost every Muslim who ever meets me and finds out about my background loves, loves, loves? to pretend they were the first person to tell me, oh, you know that you face East three times a day. We do it five times, as if, as if I'd never heard about it before because they're so proud. And I think that they're, they're so proud of the Jewish history in, our, in the Arab world, obviously leaving out a lot of the last hundred years, but they, they're really proud of it. So what can we do to tap into that? What, where, where do we say like, look, we had a good relationship with you compared to a lot of parts in the world. And that is something that your ancestors should be proud of. We took a little bit of a left turn. Now we're in a situation where if you can respect us in the land of Israel, you'd be once again eclipsing your European counterparts who are having a hard time with it right these days. So I think I would say that, you know, how can you find a way to say, this is my religion? I'm not going to slam the phone down on you if you try to schedule a Shabbat meeting, but I'm going to explain to you this is how it is. And of course, you understand that because I wouldn't schedule something for you on a Friday night or a Friday afternoon and you'd get it. So I think that would be one of those things where let's so talk I, about I- yeah, no, I was going to say that I think that for the Jewish community in America, there's a lot of noise around these issues. And it's hard to distinguish between, oh, what are you supposed to say on campus and the relationships you're supposed to build in America and lumping all of the Arab world into one and not really having that more nuanced approach that both of you are trying to, to encourage and to, and to get us to hear and to understand today. So I really appreciate that. Um, again, anyone in the audience, if you want to type in a question to the chat, we have another minute or two that we could take a question from the crowd, or if you want to. So Esther, while you're waiting. I want to say hello to my classmates. I don't know if you recognize me. Looks like Florence. Florence Fort Gangrenuts, right. So I'm the Israeli contingent. I've been living in Israel, in Jerusalem, since 1969 which is like a year after we graduated. I've been here since then. And I've, I've, it's great seeing you guys. And it's fascinating hearing what you're doing. Obviously, I'm on a different side. <laughs> I'm not the American who's, who's uh, being in co- getting uh, in contact with uh, the UAE and all other Arab and Muslim places. But I live among... I mean, I live in the midst of Arabs. I study Arabic. Um, I work not on a daily basis, but I am a social worker. And um, in, uh, in the Jerusalem municipality, of course, we have many Arabs working as well. So I come in contact with Arabs in all different um, scenarios. And uh, we're fine together. But on the other hand, we have the whole problem of the terrorists um, and the terror attacks and the difficult life that we we have, you know, on a daily basis. So it's just a whole different aspect that that uh, I have on a daily basis and that I see. But it's fascinating. It was fascinating for me to hear you and to hear after so many years what wonderful things you are you are doing uh, and the rest of the crowd here that i that i listened to i really enjoyed it very much if i could i i mean almost to reframe i think almost to what i was saying there are so many different entry points to this conversation about on a broad 
scale you call Jewish and Arab relations. And I do find that a lot of people are caught in the, the dialogue of what exactly is happening in Israel. It sounds like the Abraham Accords is actually trying to tackle that problem from the outside in rather than from the inside out. Would that, do you find that to be accurate? Um, uh, if I may, I want to yeah. put this, uh, you know, also politely because you're recording it. What I found in all my conversations and in hosting people from as far away as Indonesia uh, in Israel is that uh, they're not really engaged in the Palestinian issue. Palestinians know that. So every opportunity to do something at Al-Aqsa and to try to reconvert the, the uh, thing into a religious item, uh, they're pretty desperate to do so. Uh, what the Abraham Accords are going forward because that's what the countries involved need in order to survive and to thrive. The Palestinian issue has been around for over seven decades. Uh, and yes, they say in, my, in all the private conversations, look, you guys have to solve this if at the end of the day. But in the meantime, it's not been a roadblock uh, to, uh, to moving uh, forward. And I think what might be useful for the school, just to, to come up with an idea that might be more basic and quote unquote simple to do, if you have a day in the calendar which you celebrate Mizrahi Jews and the culture uh, and the countries in which they come, in which you say you have the whole school focusing on that day, invite every single Arab and Muslim ambassador from the United Nations or from the consulate to be your guests that day. Uh, I, I know for sure that both of us would be happy to be present on that day to help uh, go around, which means that you're not doing anything out of the ordinary. It's another, you know, six-star educational uh, flappish extravaganza, but that will be an education for any of those diplomats who show up who have no idea right now that you exist. And if they did, just knowing the population base and the school that is going to be a, a multiplier and an enhancer. So you got to start somewhere. Start simple. Well, with I think strengths. it's an amazing idea. Hila and Sarah, you were going to help me organize it. We're going to, we're going to ask for, I actually think there is a lot that could be done. I think there's a rich resources to tap into. We, the, this, the, the Sephardics and Syrian communities of New York are some of the largest in the world. And um, we definitely should, should find a way to use that as a bridge. That's very exciting. Um, I, I see that there are some questions here about, about water and the use of water in the, in the conversation. I'm not sure if we have a ton of time left. Um, you can touch on it, but any closing, I mean, we've, we've had any closing thoughts from you, Jake, uh, as well, well before we go. Yeah, you know, I have a, a quick thing to say about water. I'm, I left that out when I was talking about the jobs and the petrodollars and other things like that. Um, the, you know, the, the water issue is a huge reason why these Abraham Accords move forward. Dubai needs water. The rest of the Arab world needs it. And Israel has, you know, I'm not trying to, to, to jinx it here, but Israel has solved not only its water problems, but if taken to its logical uh, progression and step, I think the world's water problems can be solved by Israel to the extent that, and this is a story probably many of you haven't heard, Israel now has figured out a way to use drip irrigation to grow rice. For those of you who understand world populations and understand why 
rice is such a, is the most important staple grain in the world and in the largest populations in the world, it's also the most environmentally unfriendly crop there ever is. And to use, it's a, it's a huge problem solver for the world. One that, you know, I call this the weapons of peace. I want to make a Netflix documentary called The Weapons of Peace, which would include military weapons that, like the F-35, which has a lot to do with these peace agreements as well. The F-35, to borrow a term from Star Wars, is now the ultimate weapon in the universe. And as a student of history, I understand that another weapon will come around. But to have a jet fighter that can go at hypersonic speed and not be detected by radar and do whatever it wants to do uh, is now makes it the ultimate weapon of the universe. And the, Isra- the Americans invented it and the Israelis have improved it dramatically. And that's what the, you know, this UAE and Saudi Arabia need. They also need the water. I'll add one more thing that, you know, that's a great event that Rabbi Cooper uh, came up with there. The other thing I want to do for everyone who's, wa- who's watching this right now, please, please, please. And I know it's an ugly place sometimes. But I need all of you to get involved on social media. Does that mean I want you to get into fights and arguments? No, you don't have to do that. But I don't want, listen, I hear this excuse every single day. Somebody emails me and they say, oh, I saw something on Facebook or Twitter. I saw something. And, and it's terrible. The, the Israeli army should find some way to, no, this is you. Social media is an interactive, people-used, people-powered thing. I don't want to hear from people anymore that they don't know how to use Facebook or Twitter. I don't want to hear anymore from people who say like, well, they're going to, I'm afraid. You don't have to interact with people necessarily, but you've got to get this story out. For all the money and, and, and population advantage that the anti-Israel crowd seems to have, they don't really don't have a lot of great voices. They don't have that many voices who make original contact. They all, they all copy each other, but they don't have a lot of original contact. We, as Jews, create, 